It's the 7th of June in the year of our salvation, 2007, and this is Father Z with another podcast. Today in the older traditional calendar, it's the third Sunday after Pentecost. In the newer Novus Ordo calendar, it's the 11th Sunday of Ordinary Time. We welcome back as our guest today an important early Christian writer. He was Bishop of Carthage in the 3rd century, Carthage in North Africa. He died in 258. We're having today St. Cyprian of Carthage, and we'll be hearing from some of his De Dominico Orazione, his treatise on the Lord's Prayer. I'll also use this as an opportunity to talk about our liturgical prayer and the importance of unity in liturgical prayer. And I have a wonderful piece of voicemail that one of the listeners of these podcasts kindly recorded and sent. Today we're going to hear a selection from St. Cyprian of Carthage's treatise on the Lord's Prayer, De Dominica Orazione, concerning the Lordly Prayer, or about the Lord's Prayer, as we call it today. Now, each of these readings from the Fathers of the Church, and in fact any reading we're going to hear in these podcasts, has a particular context, a historic context, and we need to know that in order to be able to understand what's going on in the selection we hear. Now, the first thing to consider in the context, of course, is the author. Who is the Cyprian, uh, the Bishop of Carthage? Well, he it fell to him to be Bishop of the most important see in North Africa at a critical juncture of the church's history in North Africa. And what we know about Cyprian comes from, uh, mainly from his letters. We have 59 uh, letters written by him. We also have a biography uh, written by a deacon who lived with him, a deacon named Pontian. And we also have the Acts or uh, the transcripts of his martyrdom. He would eventually come to be killed in the in the persecutions against the church. Now, Cyprian was born into a wealthy pagan family, and he, like many of the fathers of the church, was trained as a rhetor and worked as a lawyer. And uh, he converted around 245 or 246 and was ordained a priest very soon after that. But in 249 already, he was made a bishop, which caused some real problems and divisions among the older clergy uh, who would accuse him of being kind of like a neophyte, and they were also jealous of him. Now, uh, Cyprian uh, had to face a terrible time of persecution in... 250, the emperor Dacius imposed a law that everyone had to sacrifice to the gods of the empire, and many Christians fell at that time. They they lapsed, as uh, they came to call it, and they either sacrificed uh, or they bought a certificate saying that they had, but in some way they caved in. But others who didn't were uh, persecuted terribly. They were hunted down. Their property was confiscated. They could be imprisoned. They, they were Many of them were killed. 
and Cyprian himself had to go into hiding, and he continued to guide his flock by means of letters and uh, different writings that he would put together and then send out to his flock. But uh, as the persecutions began to slow a little bit, or at least continue long enough that um, many Christians repented of having lapsed and they wanted to come back into communion, uh, Cyprian, you know, was trying to figure out what to do. What are we going to do with these new people? But or these old people who wanted to come back. But there was a group of priests gathered around a guy by the name of Novatus who decided to start readmitting people or uh, giving them letters to present to their bishops that basically demanded that they be readmitted. And so uh, what happened is that these people were being readmitted back to the back to communion without um, any you know consideration of Cyprian's desires or his authority. And so Cyprian was forced to deal with a crisis of how to maintain discipline in the church, and especially discipline among his priests. And another controversy came up when Cornelius was elected bishop of Rome. There were a group of uh, rigorists around a priest by the name of Novation, a different guy, not Novatus in North Africa, but this is Novation, a priest of Rome, who held a counter-election and they started their own schism. They did not accept uh, return of the communion of the lapsed, among other things. Basically, they thought that a relaxed discipline um, would uh, destroy the church. The church would cease to be the church if they didn't exercise discipline in this regard. And their schism eventually spread to North Africa, and a schismatic bishop uh, under this novation uh, was named to Carthage, and he set up shop there, a guy by the name of Fortunatus. Of course, the novationists, they thought that they were the one holy Catholic Church, and so they weren't going to uh, recognize any of the authority of Cornelius or of Cyprian. So Cyprian had to deal with this terrible break uh, between churches as well. And from that, there came other problems, terrible difficulties, theological questions began to rise up. And many Christians wanted to return to union with Cyprian. And that wasn't too much of a problem if these people had been baptized before the Novationists had started setting up shop in North Africa. But some of them had been baptized in that schismatic group, and so the question arose about whether or not they had even been baptized at all, if their baptism that they had received from the Novationists was valid. In fact, the question then is, is valid baptism given outside the church? And Cyprian was faced with then you know, trying to figure out how we recognize that the church is the church. How do we recognize the church? Which group truly was the church? And so this is the context of the treatise of Cyprian's, um, uh, Cyprian's treatise on the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer had already been a very important text in North Africa. Uh, it was especially important during the baptismal rites and during the what we call the mystagogical catechism, the, uh, the ongoing training and explanation of the mysteries of faith that the neophytes or the newly baptized received from the bishop himself after Easter. 
Uh, Tertullian, an earlier writer, the earliest Latin writer in North Africa, had already written a treatise on the Lord's Prayer. And Cyprian uh, worked uh, in part from Tertullian's work also. But now, to show how important this, uh, this text was, uh, it was used, of course, for catechism, but it was used also for a moral catechism. The Lord's Prayer was to teach morals and not just doctrine. The whole point of teaching the Lord's Prayer to the neophytes was to help give them an identity that would help set them apart and perceive themselves as being very distinct and very different from the pagans uh, among whom they lived. And so the giving and receiving of the both the creed and the Lord's Prayer was very important. There was a traditio symboli, that was the giving of the creed, and then the reditio, the, the giving back when the, uh, the newly baptized or the, the catechumen had to recite the text of the creed back. But there was also the traditio the traditio orationis dominice, the giving of the Lord's Prayer, and then the reditio, when they would have to recite it. And then, of course, they were taught more deeply uh, what the text meant, what the lordly prayer was all about. And Cyprian saw the Lord's Prayer as a compendium evangelii, like a summary of the, of the whole gospel. And it was also useful for him to help stress the unity of the church and create the unity of the church. And he believed that by praying it well, unity would be reinforced as well as, you know, Christian morals and and uh, the deeper spiritual life of, of the people in his charge. So you can see that, that Cyprian has a motive in writing about the Lord's Prayer. Now there are a couple of things that you should listen for in this uh, in this wonderful piece. You should uh, pay attention, for example, to how he, like many of the fathers of the church will do, will find a, a figure from the Old Testament and turn that person into a symbol or a type, like a foreshadowing of who the church would be and should be in the future. And so he talks about the Old Testament, Testament figure Anna and how Anna prays is the way that the church ought to pray. Listen also to his language about uh, the hidden meaning of things. Remember, this is all about words and what words mean. Words have deeper meanings. And just as the exemplum of, a new, of an Old Testament figure has more and deeper meaning for us now, all of the words of the prayers have deeper meaning. But not just of the prayers, but also the prayers of our hearts, the kinds of prayers that we express, the things that we say, have deeper meanings. And so listen to what Cyprian does with all this in this selection from his treatise on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, paragraphs 4 to 6. This is in the second reading of the Office of Readings for today. Thank you. 
Ex Tractatus Sancti Cipriani Episcopi et Martyris, de Dominica Oratione. Sit orantibus sermo et precatio cum disciplina quietem continenze pudorem, cogitemus nos sub conspectu dei stare, placendum stid divinis oculis set habito corporis et modo vocis. Namut impudentis est clamoribus strepere, ita contra congruit verecundum when we pray, our words should be calm, modest, and disciplined. Let us reflect that we are standing before God. We should please Him both by our bodily posture and the manner of our speech. It is characteristic of the vulgar to shout and make a noise, not those who are modest. On the contrary, they should employ a quiet tone in their prayer. Moreover, in the course of his teaching, the Lord instructed us to pray in secret. Hidden and secluded places, even our own rooms, give witness to our belief that God is present everywhere, that he sees and hears all, that in the fullness of his majesty he penetrates hidden and secret places. This is the teaching of Jeremiah. Am I God when I am near, and not God when I am far? Can any one hide in a dark corner without my seeing him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Another passage of Scripture says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing both good and wicked men. The same modesty and discipline should characterize our liturgical prayer as well. When we gather to celebrate the divine mysteries with God's priest, we should not express our prayer in unruly words. The petition that should be made to God with moderation is not to be shouted out noisily and verbosely. For God hears our heart, not our voice. He sees our thoughts. He is not to be shouted at. The Lord showed us this when he asked, why do you think evil in your hearts? The book of Revelation testifies to this also, and all the churches shall know that I am the one who searches the heart and the desires. Anna maintained this rule. In her observance of it, she is an image of the church. In the first book of Kings, we are told that she prayed quietly and modestly to God in the recesses of her heart, her prayer was secret, but her faith was evident. She did not pray with her voice, but with her heart, for she knew that in this way the Lord would hear her. She prayed with faith and obtained what she sought. Scripture makes this clear in the words, She was speaking in her heart, her lips were moving, but her voice could not be heard, and the Lord heard her prayer. The psalmist also reminds us, Commune within your own hearts, and in the privacy of your room express your remorse. This is the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Through Jeremiah he suggests this, Say in your hearts, Lord, it is you that we have to worship. My friends, Anyone who worships should remember the way in which the tax collector prayed in the temple alongside the Pharisee. He did not raise his eyes immodestly to heaven or lift up his hands arrogantly. 
Instead, he struck his breast, and, confessing the sins hidden within his heart, he implored the assistance of God's mercy. While the Pharisee was pleased with himself, the tax collector deserved to be cleansed much more because of the manner in which he prayed. For he did not place his hope of salvation in the certainty of his own innocence. Indeed, no one is innocent. Rather, he prayed humbly, confessing his sins, and the Lord who forgives the lowly heard his prayer. That was a selection from St. Cyprian of Carthage's Treatise on the Lord's Prayer. And I want to return to an idea here. Uh, we heard uh, Cyprian say, God hears our heart, not our voice. He sees our thoughts. He is not to be shouted at. Well, the idea that God sees our heart doesn't mean that our words are unimportant, because words mean things. Cyprian is, in this treatise, working to create a deeper unity in his flock by revealing the deeper meaning of the words, words Christ himself thought important enough to teach people as the way that he wanted them to pray. So the words really make a difference. In our own time, uh, while in, in private prayer we can and we have to open our hearts to God in our own way and in our own words, it is very useful to use, and even actually to begin with in our prayer, good standard prayers, prayers that are carefully crafted and sculpted over time and polished by real masters of the spiritual life. These prayers contain a great deal of, of material for our reflection, and they can shape us, and they can shape our prayer and protect us from all manner of nonsense down the road or funny ideas. And this is extremely important in private prayer, but it's even more important in public prayer. Because our outward words and actions reveal what we believe. Uh, they, reveal, uh, they reveal what we believe to ourselves and to our neighbors, uh, right there in the, in the pews in the church. And they also reveal what we as a church uh, in this place believe to our neighboring churches and the church throughout the whole world. We have to have continuity of prayer and action and liturgical practice because this is also continuity of belief. If we believe certain things, we'll pray in a certain way. If we pray all together, we will tend to believe the certain things all together. This is why we have to maintain in our liturgical practice the Latin language throughout the whole Latin church. I often wonder, you know, what does it mean to be in the Latin church? Or what does it mean to be a priest of the Latin rite if you never use Latin? 
It leaves me scratching my head all the time. But this is one of the reasons why Latin is important, because Latin says something. It means something to pray using Latin, everyone together throughout the whole world and across the centuries. And it's also extremely important for the priest and all of the sacred ministers to use the texts, the official texts, that are given to us by the church and not make it up as they go out of some false motivation even if it's you know maybe well motivated but a false idea to that they're going to make mass more meaningful or on the other hand uh, god forbid that they they think they're going to correct the church's teaching because the church isn't either saying enough or the church is saying something wrong and there are some priests who think that so priests have to be faithful faithful to the texts but lay people have to be faithful to the texts too there are very often when I hear people refusing to use the texts that are given by the church even though they're not very good sometimes folks we have to be obedient to our texts and to our rights we have to have unity and so uh, I'll leave you with a motto, a, a motto that we came up with on the what does the prayer really say blog do the red say the black obey the rubrics and don't make up your own texts because by doing so we subtly begin to tear at the unity of holy catholic church i don't know what they have to say it makes no difference anyway whatever it is i'm against it no matter what it is or who commenced it i'm against it your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. I'm opposed now, many of you who follow along on the blog, What Does the Prayer Really Say?, will know that I posted some time ago, in anticipation of the release of this now-fabled motu proprio to de-restrict the so-called Tridentine Mass, I posted five rules of engagement for when and if it actually comes out. And uh, that stirred some real conversation there, an awful lot of comments now attached to that entry uh, with the five rules of engagement. And some of the comments revealed to me that maybe a little further explanation of them has uh, been warranted. As a matter of fact, I've had some requests uh, to go back and spin some of them out, but do so in a way that is not just in the, uh, the comment section under the entry. In other words, people are looking for a little bit more. So I decided to use this podcast to try to get out them a little bit. So I'll present here the five rules with then a little bit of commentary. I'll gloss them a bit, and we'll see then what happens. Number one, rejoice because our liturgical life has been enriched, not because we win. Everyone wins when the church's life is enriched. This is not a zero-sum game. Now, what do I mean by this first one? Well, remember that we are all in this together. If I am benefiting in my spiritual life and I'm making progress and I'm joyful and trying to live the life of grace, that helps everybody. It helps build up the whole church. 
if I am uh, not living the life of grace and I am sinning and hurting myself and my neighbor and my relationship with God, then everybody is diminished. Similarly, in our liturgical life and in all other dimensions of the church, both spiritual and material, if one sector of the church benefits, then all the church is built up. This is not a zero-sum game, by which I mean it's not as if joy or happiness or benefits are like a pie, and once we cut up the pie and distribute the pieces of the pie, well, then the pie is gone, and if you get some, that means I get less. And just because uh, we are uh, happy and, and, and delighted by the fact that we will have the older use of the older mass to use all the time if we want to, well, that doesn't mean that other people lose as a result. There aren't any losers here. So we should be happy, be, not because we, we think we're winning, which is just an illusion. Everybody wins. The whole liturgical life of the church has been enriched. Number two, do not strut. Let us be gracious to those who have in the past not been gracious in regard to our legitimate aspirations. Now I use here the word strut. Now in some uh, places where American English is spoken, strut might simply have the connotation of uh, a joyful expression, kind of a triumphant expression, happy. Well, I take it uh, to be an arrogant uh, attitude, uh, an in-your-face thing, the sort of thing uh, that maybe some athletes do when they try to rub it in the faces of other teams when they've succeeded in scoring in some way. We have to be extremely careful when the de-restriction of the older form of mass comes, not to show ourselves as being snotty in regard to those who have been terribly unjust uh, in the past toward people who have had legitimate aspirations for the older form of mass. As Pope John Paul II said, he he demanded, he commanded by his apostolic authority that respect should be shown to people who have legitimate aspirations for the older forms of liturgy. And that, in fact, has not happened, has it? There have been a lot of people, a lot of bishops, a lot of priests, whole sections, uh, sectors of the lay faithful, who have been not nice uh, or not respectful towards people who want the older form of Mass. On the other hand, on the other hand, a lot of people who have wanted the older form of mass have not been terribly respectful themselves toward the aspirations of others, regardless of whether you perceive them to be legitimate or not. We must rise above that kind of thing when the older form of mass is de-restricted. We must be gracious to those in the past who have not been gracious to us. So many, so many times, the opportunities to have the older form of Mass hitherto have been ruined because the people asking for it have been nasty about it, and not gracious at all. Well, when this comes, when this de-restriction comes, we will have an opportunity, hopefully, to do a lot of healing 
in the church, and that can start by being gracious. Number three, show genuine Christian joy. If you want to attract people to what gives you so much consolation and happiness, be inviting and be joyful. Avoid the sourness some of the more traditional stamp have sadly worn for so long. You all know the old phrase of St. Francis de Sales that you can catch more flies with a spoonful of honey than you can with a barrel of vinegar. Well, I think that uh, we all want you know, to spread the joy, right? We want other people to participate in something that makes us happy, right? But nobody is going to be attracted to what you uh, think is wonderful if you're moping around about it. We have to show joy to people. Another thing that is very important is never forget the power of an invitation. Be inviting. If you were to invite ten people in a joyful way and be able to explain why it makes you happy. If you were to invite ten people every week and maybe just one of them one of them uh, came along with you to a celebration of the older form of Mass and found a group of people that were consumed with joy about being Catholics and expressing it and expressing also a certain measure of welcome and hospitality towards new people who came to help them understand what was going on rather than you know ignore them or glare at them if they did the wrong thing if they were to come and have a wonderful experience well then this would be a vindication of all of the uh, of the provisions that have been made for the use of the older form of mass and the the way that the sacraments were celebrated it would be a vindication joy is a sign of success in this case so show it and share it number four be engaged in the whole life of your parishes especially in the works of mercy organized by the same if you want the whole church to benefit from the use of the older liturgy, then you who are shaped by the older form of Mass should be of benefit to the whole church in concrete terms. You just heard in Cyprian a little while ago about uh, the importance of having unity, about not having divisions within a church, uh, the larger church or within a diocese, but also within a parish. We can't have an isolated little group within a parish, as if it were a ghetto, uh, a separatist group, um, because that cannot create anything but hard feelings and, and friction along the line. If you, on the other hand, were to then, uh, while at the same time enjoying the use of the older form of Mass, really dig into the life of the parish and not hold yourself outside of it. Really get involved in all of the things that the parish was doing. Especially if it comes down to things like, you know, food shelves and and uh, work with the elderly and all the different things that uh, maybe your parish might have available. Well, then everyone will benefit from you and your use of the older form of the liturgy which is shaping you in an additional way what we do is we it's like putting your money where your mouth is you make concrete 
the fact that you are benefiting from the form of liturgy that you are enjoying. Number 5. If the document doesn't say everything we might hope for, don't bitch about it like a whiner. Speak less of our rights and what we deserve or what it ought to have been, as if we were our own little popes, and more about our gratitude, gratitude, gratitude for what God gives us. Now this last point might be very, very difficult for some people. And I say this uh, with all charity and and respect for uh, people who are very much involved in the uh, traditional liturgical movement, that the traditional thing tends to attract the type of person who's happy only when he's unhappy. And uh, many, many times I have met people that no matter what they've been given, no matter what they're able to enjoy, or no matter what they're able to participate in, it's never good enough. Even when people have bent over backwards to do uh, things the way that they like to have them. I remember, I remember very specifically going to a place once, and uh, I had really had to make a lot of sacrifices in order to go. Sacrifices of of my own money, which was not, uh, which was not. Uh, reimbursed and by a lot of time I had to change things around anyway to make a long story short I went to a place to celebrate the older form of mass and at the end of mass which I celebrated very well and this which the ser- the servers had done very well uh, some people came up to me and began to gripe and moan and pick and complain about the tiny little things in the way that they thought they should have been done and what I had done wrong and what the servers had done wrong and this was wrong and that was wrong and and I made the determination that I would never go back to that place again and this happens a lot with people who make petitions for example to priests or to bishops they do it in such a way that after a while the priest or the bishop might not have any desire to treat with them again or do anything for them. It ruins everything. It ruins your own experience and your own opportunities to do when you do that. And it also ruins the opportunities and experiences that other people can have. Spreading the gloom doesn't help anything. And so, if the document comes out and it doesn't have everything precisely in the way you think it ought to be expressed, or every provision precisely in the manner you would like it to see it, don't gripe about it. Don't whine. Now, this does not mean that we cannot express our legitimate concerns. It doesn't mean that we can promote uh, respectfully and properly uh, a contrary position or that we can't have another opinion. It doesn't mean that we have to uh, sit mute and sit in our hands as if we don't have any rights in the church. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if we're going to express ourselves or you know misgivings or uh, concerns that we might have, don't bitch about it. Because 
Nobody likes that, and it doesn't get you anywhere. If at the same time we express our concerns, we express gratitude and joy for what we have, you are much more likely to gain a sympathetic ear, and your concerns will be listened to, so that, down the line, they can have an effect on future decisions. For months before my son was born, I used to yell from night till morn, whatever it is, I'm against it. And I've kept yelling since I first commenced it. I'm against it. In these podcasts and on the blog, I have invited you to send me voicemail or sound messages. And you can do so by going to the bottom of the left sidebar on the blog and clicking a button there on a box that I have set up for voicemail. Well, Jim from Scotland took me up, uh, took up my invitation and sent me a very interesting message which I would like to share with you. Hello, Father Zed. This is Jim calling from Scotland. Thanks so much for all the well-rounded and thoughtful podcasts that you're doing at the moment. I'm amazed that you find so much time to be able to produce them. They're so polished. Well done. And also thanks for the blog. Um, how many hits do you get from the Vatican? I wonder. Vatican computers checking up on their Latin versions. I wanted to share a piece of Latin trivia from Britain. Before the Celtic peoples had a word for a church that finally became the word Kiel, so we've got lots of town names we the Kiel, like Kilmarnock. Before that there was only one word that people had, which was Ecclesia. So we have a Latin imprint all over the land. Um, place names from before the earliest times in Christian history, at the time of St. Ninia and the Romans. So we've got lots of places called Eccles or Eagles. We've got a town called Ecclesfecken. We've got an Eaglesham. And famously, we've got Glen Eagles for golf. Just south of Perth, we have a little place called Ecclesia Magurdo. Put them up in street map or multi-map. And you can even buy an Eccles cake from England. So there you are. Eccles. Ecclesia and eagles. Well done and thanks. Now Jim made a really good point in his message. Uh, If I am involved in a blog called What Does the Prayer Really Say? We can extend this to What Does the Place Name Really Say? And what Jim uh, sent reminds me of how inseparable our Christian faith is from Western civilization. Christendom shaped uh, where we live and the towns we live in and the byways we walk. It's written into the very stuff of our daily lives and it can't be untangled from it. And I thank Jim very much for the reminder and the good message and I'm glad he decided to send us a little voicemail. 
And with that, I think I'll wrap this podcast up. I haven't made one for a few days. I've just been kind of basking and glorying in the fruits of the Sabine farm. Uh, the strawberry patch is producing wonderful strawberries, and the herbs are coming along very nicely. And I just planted a whole bunch of other things. I planted some rucola, or arugula, as it's called in English, and uh, some some things that were lacking to the garden I've got going now. And we've had wonderful weather, and it's been calm and peaceful and tranquil and uh, that sometimes that's just what you need for the sake of your soul and the sake of your work. I also have noticed that some of you have been watching on the webcam that I have set up in the chapel of the Sabine farm. Every once in a while I'll notice that some people are tuned into the webcam uh, even when I'm saying mass in the morning and uh, you're welcome to watch but remember remember if you catch me on a sunday or in a holy day of obligation you don't fulfill your mass obligation by watching on the webcam you've got to go to church but you already know these things now i hope you'll come and visit the blog wdtprs.com that's whiskey delta tango papa romeo sierra.com what does the prayer really say god bless you and tune in for another podcast real soon bye bye